You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. It's 2 p.m. Central Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. We now bring you Salvation is from the Jews with Roy Schulman. Hi. Welcome back to Salvation is from the Jews, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith or seen in the other direction that celebrates the completion, the full realization, the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. Now, before I begin, I will say that uh, I will be speaking, I will be alone today on the show. The past series of shows, about half the time I've had a guest, another Jewish entrant into the Catholic Church to give their witness testimony. And the other half of the shows, I've been on the air alone, giving a sort of catechesis on Judaism and on the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith. And that's what I'll be doing today. And therefore, if you do wish to call in with any questions, you are more than welcome to do so. The number to call is 1-866-333-6279, which spells 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And if you call in with any comments or questions, I'll be happy to try to respond to them. Uh, if you haven't been with us in our previous shows and want to catch a previous show, they are up uh, archived both on Radio Maria's website, which is radiomaria.us. You can click on Programs and find Salvation is from the Jews and the shows up there. And they're also on my website, which is Salvation is from the Jews, all one word, dot com. And there you can go also to download past shows or to find out more about what I talk about on this show or to find out, frankly, more about my books and other uh, teachings and witness testimonies and so forth that are related to the Jewish entrance into the Catholic Church. The theme for today's show is essentially the Jewish scriptures and some information about the Jewish scriptures and from the Jewish scriptures, which shed light on Christianity, that shed light on the New Testament, that shed light on the um, Christian scriptures, of course, and also on some of the events in the life of Jesus and some of the words that Jesus spoke and some of the discussions in St. Paul's letters also, all of which are, are illumined to some extent, are given a deeper understanding by knowing the background of the Jewish scriptures that provides the kind of foundation for them. Because, of course, it goes without saying that the whole world that's presented in the New Testament was the Jewish world, and all of the actors in the New Testament were coming from the world of the Jewish scriptures and Jewish theology, and therefore a lot of what they said and did was kind of rooted in that soil. So before I launch into the specifics, let me talk a little bit about the Jewish scriptures and what they are. First of all, the heart of the Jewish scriptures is, of course, um, what we know as Catholics as the Old Testament, or Protestants also as the Old Testament. Uh, the Jews don't refer to it by and large as the Old Testament because, of course, for them there is no New Testament. Uh, the typical Jewish expression for the Jewish scriptures is Tanakh, which is an acronym of the letters T, N, and essentially K, which stand for the words Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, which then in turn is Hebrew, for the law, the prophets, and the writings. So Torah means the law, Nevi'im means prophets, and Ketuvim means writings. Uh, I will go into them 
in their specifics in a moment, but first let me say that the Jewish scriptures which were around at the time of Jesus were identical to the, what is now, well, the Jewish scriptures that are around at the time of Jesus were identical to the Old Testament in the Catholic canon. Um, they're the very same books. Several centuries after the time of Jesus, some of those books were dropped from the Jewish canon. It's not really clear why. And the Protestant canon today consists of the Jewish canon from several centuries after the death of Jesus. So it's essentially the Jewish canon after the Jews themselves dropped those half dozen or so books from the Jewish canon. But at the time of Jesus, the Jewish canon was exactly uh, what we know of as the Catholic Old Testament today. The, um, let me then begin with the first part of the uh, Jewish canonical written scriptures, the Torah. As I mentioned, Torah quite literally means law. There's no way to say law in Hebrew without saying Torah, and there's no way to refer to the first section of the Jewish Old Testament uh, without saying essentially law. There's, there are one and the same words. Now, this is actually a quite a bit of potential interest to Christians, because what it means is, in the words of Jesus, whenever Jesus uses the word law, it is, in some sense, ambiguous whether he is saying law, referring to what we think of as law in the sense of the common noun law, or whether he's saying Torah, referring to the first section of the Jewish scriptures, the Torah. Now, the Torah is, uh, consists of the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which, uh, according to Jewish teaching, were given to Moses on top of Mount Sinai when he went up on Mount Sinai. That's why they're also called the Law of Moses or the Books of Moses. So, for instance, uh, when in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus says, quote, Think not that I have come to abolish the Law and the Prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He could be referring to the first uh uh, two sections of the Jewish scriptures. In other words, he could be saying, think not that I have come to abolish the Torah and the Nevi'im, in other words, what you know of as the Jewish scriptures, but to fulfill them. Or he could be meaning, um, in, in the sense of the common nouns, think not that I have come to abolish the law as the law and the prophets as the prophets. Or I think most likely he means both simultaneously, that that the idea of making the distinction between the law as the Jewish law and the first five books of the Bible is a distinction which is obvious to us to make, but in the Jewish world of 2,000 years ago is in some sense probably a distinction which would not even have occurred to people. Now, this um, fact that it's the same word for the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and law, is particularly interesting and particularly relevant when it comes to the writings of St. Paul, the letters of St. Paul. Now, many of us are aware that one of the bones of contention, so to speak, between Catholic theology and Protestant theology is the doctrine that Luther started of uh, solo fide, of by faith alone, that man is saved by faith alone, rather than by, quote, works of the law. Uh, for instance, um, they point to St. Paul in uh, 
Romans chapter 3, verse 20, St. Paul writes, For man, no man will be justified in God's sight by works of the law. Now, one of the common Protestant interpretations of this verse is to say, see, it means that what you do doesn't matter. You can't justify yourself by good works or virtue, exercise or anything like that. It's only faith, faith in Jesus and in his saving power that brings salvation, and what you do is irrelevant. And in fact, Luther uh, actually said at one point, I won't give the uh, exact details of the quote because, frankly, I think they're a bit vulgar, but he said, essentially, it doesn't matter how grievously I sin, I could commit this horrible sin and that horrible sin a thousand times a day, and I would still be saved because of my faith in Jesus. And so that's the interpretation of works of the law that lies behind that interpretation of St. Paul that says that man is saved by faith alone. But in fact, knowing what we know about what the word law means, or rather what the word Torah means, meaning simultaneously the uh, law is given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the first five books of the Bible, and also law as a common noun, that statement, for no mo- so no ma- excuse me, for no man is justified in God's sight by works of the law, means something very different. Because if you look at the Torah, if you look at the beginning of the Jewish scriptures, you will find, especially in the law as given to Moses on Mount Sinai, many, many, many ritual prescriptions, ritual commands. In fact, Jews identify 613 of such commandments in the Torah, in the uh, five books of Moses, and they deal with a tremendous amount, a tremendous number of ritual practices. For instance, what cloths, what kind of cloth you're allowed to wear, what kind of food you're allowed to eat, the um, necessity of wearing fringes on the corners of your garment if you're a man, uh, the prayers you have to say, the festivals you have to observe, uh, a lot of uh, commandments about about temple worship, sacrifices one has to make, service in the temple, ritual purity, and so forth. In aggregate, they add up to about 613 of such laws. These laws in the uh, Torah are known as mitzvot. Mitzvot is just Hebrew for commandments. And according to Jewish theology, it is the performing of the mitzvot, it's the performing of these commandments, it's the performing of these laws, which do bring salvation and do bring redemption and do bring about sanctification. So with that background, we see that since the entire Jewish theological system was based on sanctification and redemption through the ritual performance of these commandments in the Torah, we can see that when Paul says, for no man will be justified in God's sight by works of the law, one could equally well translate that as, for no man will be justified in God's sight by performing the ritual commandments of the Torah. Right? There's no way to make that distinction in the underlying Hebrew between works of the law and commandments of the Torah. The fact that St. Paul has very explicitly in mind not works of the law in terms of obeying God's law and doing good deeds, but that he is in fact referring to the commandments, the mitzvot, the commandments in the Torah, is clear from just a few verses later in the same passage, in the same chapter. St. Paul continues, For we hold that a man is justified by faith 
apart from works of the law? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? So you see, because the mitzvot in the Torah applied only to Jews, if man could only be justified by the performing the mitzvot, that would mean that God is the God of the Jews only. The fact that God is the God of the Gentiles also means must relate back to that statement that no man will be justified in God's sight by the performance of the mitzvot. In other words, if St. Paul, in, in excuse me, I'm getting perhaps overly excited. I'll try to slow down. If St. Paul meant by works of the law, performance of good deeds, it would have no connection to the later statement that God is the God of the Gentiles as well as of the Jews, because, of course, the Gentiles have to perform good deeds also. So the fact that he goes on to say that God is also the God of the Gentiles means that in the earlier statement, eight verses earlier, he was referring to the laws that only apply to Jews, that is, the performance of the mitzvot, the performance of the largely ritual commandments in the Torah. And again, the reason for this ambiguity comes because in the underlying Hebrew, the word for law is indistinguishable from the word Torah, the word, the name given to the law of Moses, that is the first five books of the Old Testament. So, in fact, um, the solo fide, the, fact, the idea that man is justified by faith alone and not by good deeds, is negated by the words of Jesus himself. In, the, uh, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus himself says the following, and now I'll read it, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of glory, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and who will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and who will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, O blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Obviously, these are good works, right? Giving the hungry food, giving the thirsty a drink, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, and so forth. So these must be referring to good works. Jesus continues, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see thee naked and feed thee, or thirsty and give thee drink? And when did we see thee a stranger and welcome thee, or naked and clothe thee? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see thee hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to thee? Then Jesus, excuse me, then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. So I can't see, I can't imagine how Jesus could have made it more plain that, in fact, 
the actions that one does, the, the, the good works that one does, are intimately related, in fact, to one's salvation, not independent of faith in Jesus, only through faith in Jesus, but nonetheless, they're not entirely irrelevant. And again, as I, as I kind of um, uh, introduce this, this part of the discussion, that confusion seems to me to be based on not having a foundation, actually, in an understanding of the underlying Jewish world, Jewish theology, uh, and, and Hebrew language that, that rests underneath the New Testament. Now, so that is probably enough for now about a discussion of the Torah and, or of the law. Let me go on to the other major part of the Jewish scriptures. Which is the, uh, which is the Talmud. Now, uh, I, I see that we have a call. I'm very looking forward to, um, to taking the call in a moment. But let me just first introduce the concept of the Talmud for a minute or two and then see what, uh, question or comment or caller might have. Now, the Jewish teaching is the following. That when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Torah, the, receive this uh, Hebrew scriptures from God, the first five books of the scriptures, the books of Moses. He went up on Mount Sinai. He spent 40 days there. God gave him the five books of Moses, essentially in written form. I mean, he gave it to him by dictating it to him, but it was in the form that we know it now. But he also gave him the oral law and also gave Moses the instructions not to write down the oral law, but for it to be passed down from generation to generation, from teacher to disciple or from teacher to student. That oral law, this is now I'm, what I'm describing, is it's under the understanding in Jewish theology. That oral law was then passed down orally from teacher to student for the many, many centuries between Moses and the time of Jesus. In fact, until about a century or two after the time of Jesus, when the Jews were dispersed from the Holy Land, dispersed from Israel, at which point they decided we had better write down the oral law because if the Jews are scattered throughout the world without a homeland, it won't be preserved in its integrity in an oral form. So even though we weren't supposed to write down the oral law when it was first given to us, the time has come when we're kind of compelled to do it. So at that point, they wrote down the oral law, which, according to Jewish tradition, had been given orally by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And that oral law, once it was written down, is what we know today as the Talmud. Now, I I see that uh, we lost the call, so I will simply go on about the Talmud. But again, if anybody wants to call in, the number here is 866-333-6279. Now, Um, Jewish theology states that we know for certain that God must have given Moses an oral law to go along with the written law. How do we know that for certain? We know that because God commanded the Jews to do a number of things in the written law, in the Torah, without giving them enough details in the Torah to know how to do it. For instance, it says in the Torah that that, um, one should do no manner of work on the Sabbath, but it doesn't define what constitutes work. It says in, in the written Torah, in fact, that one may only slaughter animals to eat them in the manner which I have descri- prescribed, the manner in which God has prescribed, but it doesn't actually give that manner in the written law. Similarly, it says in the Torah that one must 
place frontlets between one's eyes. Those are what Jews call tefillin, the, the little leather boxes containing uh, scrolls of scripture between the eyes when they pray, but it doesn't give any instructions for how to make those boxes or what they should contain. So the Jewish reasoning is that if God gave these commands, made these requirements in the written law without giving sufficient detail, he must have given that sufficient detail orally. And that is uh, an item of proof for how they know that there must be an oral law to have gone along with the written law. Uh, The Talmud, in fact, fills in all of these gaps in the instructions, often with, um, if I may say so, excruciating detail. Uh, For instance, the requirement given in the Torah is simply that one is prohibited from boiling a kid in its mother's milk. And the Talmud, in its completion of this command and explaining everything that that command entails, ends up explaining that it means that one must not eat in the same meal, both milk and meat, that one must protect the contamination of any utensils or dishes that might contain meat from having ever contained any milk and vice versa, and therefore uh, for observant Jews have at least two sets of dishes, one for milk items and one for meat items, that one must wait at least six hours between eating meat and and, uh, eating a milk product and so forth. And all of those elaborations on that law which in in the Torah is simply that you can't boil a kid in its mother's milk. All of those elaborations about what it means in terms of eating milk and eating meat are simply given in the Talmud. Now, why am I saying all of this? Well, with this background and understanding that the Talmud is the Jewish oral tradition, we now can see more deeply into some of Jesus' disputes with the Pharisees and some of his comments about the law of God and the traditions of men. So let me read a passage from Matthew chapter 15, and then I'll explain how this distinction between the written law, the Torah, and the oral tradition, the Talmud, lies behind the words and even the attitude of Jesus. So reading from Matthew chapter 15, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answered them, And why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So let me go back through that. You see that Jesus is making the distinction between the law, the commandments as given by God, the Torah, and the elaborations on those commandments, and even some introduction of commandments given in the oral tradition in the Talmud. Um, For instance, um, when the scribes and the Pharisees complained about Jesus' disciples not washing their hands when they eat, they were referring to Talmudic prescriptions about washing one's hands before eating. In fact, in the Torah, those prescriptions about washing for ritual purity are in the context of temple service, 
and the ritual priesthood. They're not in the context of um, washing one's hands before one eats. Whereas by the time that law gets elaborated in the Talmud, it actually became quite elaborate. And today it is understood that one is to pour water three times over one's right hand and three times over one's left hand before eating. And should one touch one's right hand after it was purified to one's left hand before it's purified or vice versa, the hand which had been purified is no longer pure and one has to start over again. And so that there one sees a kind of contrast between the law as it appears in the written scriptures in its very, in its much more simple form relating to ritual purity for temple service and the law as it came through, filtered through uh, what Jesus is saying. And I apologize if this is offensive to Jewish ears, but what Jesus appears to be saying is in fact the precepts of men, the traditions of men, which were then taught as doctrines as though they came from God. As Jesus, uh, as the passage in Isaiah, which Jesus quotes says, in vain do these people worship me, teaching as doctrines, that is, teaching as the teachings of God, the precepts of men. So we see here Jesus placing in direct opposition the written scriptures, which the church, the Catholic church, recognizes divine in origin, of course, also, because that's the teaching about the Old Testament, that's its divinely revealed sacred scripture. And Jesus is contrasting that with the oral tradition, the Talmud, which, although um, originally rooted in and based on the written scriptures, elaborates it on uh, in a way which Jesus accuses of being the traditions of men. So, with that introduction to these things, let me take a short break, and uh, before going into the next section, or continuing on this discussion of the Talmud and the value that understanding the context of the Jewish world, the context of the Jewish law, the context of the Jewish written and oral tradition, the value that it has in understanding some of the events in the New Testament. So with that, we'll take a short break, and I'll be back with you in two or three minutes. Uh, thanks for being with us. We now return to Salvation is from the Jews with Roy Schumann. Hi, welcome back to Salvation is from the Jews. Uh, if you've just joined us, uh, it's a show in which we celebrate the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith or the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church. And today I've been talking about the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish written scriptures, and the Jewish oral tradition, and giving a little information, a little instruction about that, and showing how it shed some light on some of the passages in the New Testament, some of the events in the life of Jesus, some of the theological observations of St. Paul, and so forth, and basically how our Catholic understanding and even our Catholic faith can be enriched by knowing a little bit more about the Jewish theological world which provided the uh, ground in which it sprang up and grew. So I just introduced the idea of the Talmud, the writing down of the Jewish oral tradition that, according to Jewish theological teaching, was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, along with the written Torah, the written Jewish scriptures, the written first five books of the Jewish scriptures, and which was later, about a century or two after the death of Jesus, written down and became what we know today as the Talmud. In other words, the written down version of the Jewish oral tradition. Now, the Talmud certainly is not 
very overtly sympathetic to Christianity. Not surprisingly, when uh, the topic of Jesus does come up in the Talmud, it does not present him as the true Messiah, but as a false Messiah who led the Jewish nation astray, for which I apologize. But there you have it. It's not surprising because those Jews who did think that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah didn't end up being the rabbis who wrote the Talmud down. They ended up being converts to the Catholic Church. And, of course, a tremendous number of the early Catholics did come from Judaism. But this, therefore, they weren't around to put their input into the Talmud, so to speak. But anyway, going on, even though the Talmud uh, denies the the uh, divinity of Jesus and the Messiahhood of Jesus, it, despite itself in many ways, gives confirmation of our Catholic faith, which I find, as a Jewish Catholic, extremely interesting. So let me give several of those examples. For instance, the Talmud does explore the question of when will the Messiah come? The, uh, what it says, expl- uh, the, now let me just say the Talmud, if you were to see uh, the Talmud on a bookshelf, it would look sort of like an Encyclopedia Britannica, only bigger. It's in 63 tractates, 63 volumes, fills about three or four feet of bookshelf space, of very, um, you know, small, tight pages. Uh, now, as I said, it's 63 tractates. Now, reading from one of those tractates, which is known as Sanhedrin, I will just read the passage. The Tana Daba Eliyahu teaches, The world is to exist 6,000 years. In the first 2,000 years, there was desolation. For 2,000 years, the Torah flourished. And the next 2,000 years is the Messianic era. Okay? So basically, the Talmud is addressing the question, when will the Messiah come? And it's how long will the world exist, and at what point in the world's existing will the Messiah come? And the answer is that the world is supposed to exist for 6,000 years. For the first 2,000 years, there was desolation. That's the period between the creation of the world and, frankly, the beginning of Judaism, which, uh, by the reckoning in the Old Testament, is about 2,000 years. And then for 2,000 years, the Torah flourished. That's the 2,000 years before, between the beginning of Judaism and the coming of the Messiah. And in fact, by the reckoning in the Old Testament, um, Jesus came about very close to 2,000 years after the beginning of the Jewish people and very close to 4,000 years after the creation of the world. And then there will be 2,000 years between the coming of the Messiah and the end of the world. So, in fact, the Talmud explicitly expects Jesus to have come pretty precisely around when he came. And then, by the way, as an aside, it would suggest that we are in the last phase of the history of this world, that the second coming is pretty near, because there was supposed to be 2,000 years between the creation of the world and the beginning of Judaism, and there was, by biblical reckoning, There was supposed to be 2,000 years between the beginning of Judaism and the coming of the Messiah, and there was, by biblical reckoning, assuming that Jesus was the Messiah, which, of course, he was, and then there's supposed to be about 2,000 years between the coming of Jesus and the um, end of the world. Now, um, in fact, this division of uh, all of salvation history into 6,000 years in Jewish theology is tied to the uh, six days of creation being turned into 6,000 years of, um, of uh, human history. 
or excuse me, of world history. Now, the um, so that's a kind of uh, indirect, inadvertent, I don't want to say confirmation that Jesus was the Messiah, but certainly expectation that, uh, or rather, that Jesus exactly fulfilled the messianic expectation of when the Messiah would come. And in fact, we see this in the New Testament, right? Because I don't have the passage right in front of me, but there's a passage which um, talks about how when John, when John the Baptist emerged, everyone was asking, is this the Messiah? Because, because all of the Jews were expecting the Messiah around then. And there are a couple of allusions to that in the New Testament, that the Jewish world was abuzz with an act of expectation of the coming of the Messiah because they knew that it was around then that he was supposed to come. Now, there's, and let me move on to another place where the Messiah very beautifully, although somewhat inadvertently perhaps, um, echoes Christianity, and that is that the rabbis who were um, writing the Talmud were very aware that the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament fall into two groups. There is a group of suffering servant-type Messianic prophecies. We know those from Zechariah and Isaiah and so forth, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, through his stripes who were healed and so forth. And there are the victorious king Messianic prophecies. Uh, you know, the lion will lie down with the lamb and uh, men will beat their swords into plowshares and there'll be peace and so forth. So there are these two sets of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. One suggests a Messiah who's going to come to die and take away our sins, and the other set of messianic prophecies who suggest a Messiah who's going to come and establish eternal peace in the world and usher in the new world, the heavenly Jerusalem, and so forth. So the rabbis who wrote the Talmud asked themselves, how can we reconcile these two sets of messianic prophecies? And the answer they came up with is that they were going to be two messiahs. The first messiah to come um, would come to suffer and die, and they gave him a name. He was known as Messiah ben Yosef. In other words, Messiah, the son of Joseph. Then, somewhat later, there would come a second messiah who would come to usher in the heavenly Jerusalem, and he was given a name in the Talmud, Messiah ben David, Messiah, the son of David. Now, I wonder if this sounds familiar to any of our Christian listeners, because, in fact, Jesus, when um, during Jesus' lifetime, when people wanted to point out his humanity, what did they call him? They called him Jesus, the son of Joseph, when they wanted to point out how human he was. For instance, um, when um, in Matthew 13, when the people were surprised by his wisdom and his works, they said, is he not, is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not Joseph's son? And then, when the New Testament wants to point out Jesus's divinity, what do they call him? They call him the son of David, right? For instance, in Matthew 9, when he passes by those two blind men whose sight he restores, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. And of course, on Palm Sunday, in the Palm Sunday procession, what do they call out? Hosanna to the Son of David. So we see that, in fact, the, the Talmud, actually, without realizing it, is talking about the two comings of Jesus, the first coming and the second coming. The only mistake it makes is it doesn't realize that those are two comings of the same Messiah, not 
two comings of two separate messiahs. And when they want to point out when he's, the, it is the suffering to die messiah who comes first, they call him messiah the son of Joseph, just like Jesus was called the son of Joseph in his uh, human aspect, when it was his human aspect which was being emphasized. And when the Talmud wants to talk about the, messiah, the second coming of the Messiah, which they think of as the coming of the second Messiah, they call him Messiah, the son of David, just like the New Testament, when it is emphasizing Jesus's divinity, refers to Jesus as Jesus, the son of David. So I find this, again, as a Jew in the Catholic Church, as a very, very beautiful um, echo and, in some sense, confirmation of Christianity in the Talmud. Now, uh, let me have, uh, I think I have time for two more of these somewhat inadvertent confirmations of the truths of Christianity that are found in the Talmud, in the, in the Jewish oral tradition. And they also, by the way, simply, at least for me, add a kind of a depth and a richness to what we find in the New Testament. So let me talk about another passage in which the Talmud discusses the uh, coming of the Messiah. And that passage is known as Hatred Without Cause and appears in uh, the tractate of the Talmud known as Yoma in uh, Folio 9b. Now, the Talmud was written down after the destruction of the temple, so the Talmud recounts the destruction of the temple. The rabbis in the Talmud discuss what was the great sin of the Jewish people that was so great that God punished that sin by destroying the temple. The uh, passage from the Talmud, Yoma 9b, is the following, quote, But why was the second temple destroyed, seeing that in its time the Jews were occupying themselves with the Torah, the precepts, and the practice of charity? Because there prevailed hatred without cause. In other words, the Talmud says that the sin of the Jewish people at the time that the temple was destroyed, that is essentially the time of the passion and death of Christ, was hatred without cause, even though they were formally obeying the laws of Judaism. Does that phrase, hatred without cause, sound familiar? I think it should, because Jesus used that very same phrase himself at the Last Supper. Reading from John chapter 15, uh, around verse 18 and following, these are the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He who hates me hates my father also. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It is to fulfill the word that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Do you see that? Hated me without a cause. Exactly the phrase in the Talmud about why the temple was destroyed because of hatred without a cause. And just to make this more poignant, when Jesus said, hey, um, it is to fulfill the word that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause, he is citing a passage from Psalm 69, and Psalm 69 has always been seen since the earliest days of Christianity as a direct description of the passion, uh, passion of Christ. In fact, it's clearly a description of the passion of Christ. Let me read some verses from Psalm 69. Save me, O God. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. 
because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. End of the passage. Now, of course, we all know that they also gave me gall for my food, and uh, vinegar to drink is a direct reference to Jesus' last moments on the cross, and they gave him gall to drink, uh, gall and vinegar to drink. Uh, that, that whole psalm is a passion psalm. It's describing the passion of Jesus. And it's in that psalm that that phrase occurs, hatred without a cause. That phrase, hatred without cause, which Jesus cites at the Last Supper, and which the Talmud cites as the reason for the destruction of the temple. And now, of course, in the light of Christianity, we know that the reason for the destruction of the temple was precisely linked to the fulfillment of the messianic promise in Jesus and to his passion and death, at which point the meaningfulness and relevance of temple sacrifice ended, and therefore it was appropriate that the temple should be destroyed. And um, according to Christian, uh, maybe I should call it tradition or mythology, tradition with a small t, uh, the temple was destroyed, we, I mean, historically the temple was destroyed about, about 40 years after uh, the crucifixion of Christ, and we know that at the time of the crucifixion of Christ, we know this from the New Testament itself, the veil, there was an earthquake, and the walls, many of the walls of the temple fell. The uh, veil, the curtain before the Holy of Holies was rent into, and so forth. I think if many of you have seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, that's an un- unforgettable scene near the end of the movie. One sees the, the temple kind of being shattered and the curtain before the Holy of Holies being torn from top to bottom. And then um, about 40 years later, the temple totally was destroyed and no stone was left on top of another when the Romans conquered the Jews and Jerusalem and exiled them from Jerusalem and totally uh, demolished the temple. And uh, according to Christian tradition, that punishment of the temple being totally destroyed and the Jews being exiled from Jerusalem was also linked to uh, punishment for the uh, crucifixion of Christ. Now, this um, history of the temple being destroyed about 40 years after the death of Christ plays a very central role in understanding another prophetic passage in the Talmud, very prophetic from a Christian viewpoint, and very confirming of Christianity, in fact, and and perhaps the most mysterious and the deepest and the most compelling of these sections of the Talmud, which in fact give a very rich confirmation that Jesus was in fact the Jewish Messiah. And um, so let me, uh, I, I always hate coming to the end of the program, but I see that I only have perhaps at most 10 minutes left. So this may be the last passage from the Talmud that I discuss, but let me discuss it. It's known as the Miracle of the Scarlet Thread. And it appears in several places in Jewish scripture. It appears in the Talmud in a tractate Rosh Hashanah, folio 31b. It also, in fact, appears in the Zohar, which is the Kabbalistic writing. Uh, perhaps in a later show I'll talk about the Kabbalah. But let me read the passage. Uh, let me read it first from the Zohar. And uh, it's recounting what was known in uh, Jewish theological history 
as the miracle of the scarlet thread. So reading the citation from the Zohar, quote, oh, let me just give a backup. The, um, uh, give some uh, background information. Let me back up for a moment. The holiest day of the Jewish year was Yom Kippur, which is known as the Day of Atonement. It's the one day of the year that the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the holiest room within the temple. It's the only day of the year that even the high priest would enter it. He would only enter it after um, in an extraordinary degree of ritual purification. No one else was allowed to enter it. He would enter it on that one day to offer the sacrifice for the remission of sins for the entire Jewish nation. Um, the, uh, it was such a holy day and such a holy place, the Holy of Holies, that if the, the, the Jewish teaching was that if the high priest was not sufficiently holy or purified when he entered, he would be struck dead for the sacrilege. Now, if he was struck dead in the Holy of Holies for the sacrilege, and no one but the high priest was allowed to enter, that would be a problem because there would be no way to remove the body of the high priest from the Holy of Holies. So before he entered, there was actually a cord tied around his ankle so that should he enter unworldly and be struck dead, he could be pulled out. I give that background just to show how holy and special the sacrifice was. Now, before the sacrifice took place on the Day of Atonement, the Jewish nation, so to speak, would gather outside of the Holy of Holies and a scarlet thread, a scarlet cord, would be wrapped around the entryway to the Holy of Holies. When the high priest entered and offered sacrifice, if the sacrifice was accepted by God for the remission of sins of the Jewish nation, and if their sins were in fact forgiven, that scarlet thread would miraculously turn white, and that would be the sign that God had accepted the sacrifice, that the sins had been remitted, and there'd be tremendous jubilation outside as all of the people knew that their sins had been remitted, a little bit like in the confessional when the priest says, I absolve you of your sins, go in peace. So anyway, the passage from the Zohar is the following. All the sins are taken away on this day, on the Day of Atonement. God makes atonement for Israel and purifies them from all their sins, and they are innocent before him. On this day, the priest makes atonement for all Israel, they used to know by a certain thread of scarlet that the priests had been successful. It was known by the thread changing its color to white when there was rejoicing above and below. If it did not, however, all were distressed, knowing that their prayer had not been accepted. In other words, it was the, the scarlet thread miraculously turning white, which was the sign that uh, their sins had been forgiven. Now, the Talmud itself recounts that this miracle happened almost every year, throughout the history of the temple, until about 40 years before the destruction of the temple. About 40 years before the destruction of the temple, this miracle ceased to occur and never occurred again. What happened about 40 years before the destruction of the temple? Now I'm speaking as a Christian. Of course, Jesus was crucified about 40 years before the destruction of the temple. So the Jewish sacrificial system for the remission of sins ceased being in effect as of the Passion of Christ. So about 40 years before the destruction of the temple, of course this miracle ceased to occur because the Jewish sacrificial system was essentially voided at that point. And of course from that point on, God didn't accept the temple sacrifice as a source for the remission of sins. So we have this very beautiful, very powerful, even a very inadvertent confirmation of the truth of Christianity in the Talmud itself.
Um, that brings us pretty much to the end of the show. Let me just say in the last minute or two that, um, first of all, I, I want to issue a caution, which is there are a lot of outright falsehoods floating around, especially now in the days on, of the Internet, on the Internet, basically anti-Semitic calumnies about what it says in the Talmud. Um, the vast majority of them are made up out of whole cloth. Um, there are horrible things that it's accused of the Talmud as saying. Um, I have gone back to the Talmud to look up what these passages were when, in fact, the, the books and the verses were cited and um, have found sometimes they're totally made up, sometimes they're very malicious distortions of what is there. The only really negative things that it does say in the Talmud is, of course, the denial of the truths, the core truths of Christianity, the denial that Jesus was the Messiah, and it does deny the virgin birth in that context. But all the other negative things that um, you might come across about the Talmud having said take with uh, more than a grain of salt, take with extreme caution, because many of them are, as I said, um, just, just malicious fictions. Um, so anyway, that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, I hope that I have been able to convey some of the excitement and some of the beauty of looking at the Catholic Church and looking at the New Testament and looking at Christian theology with the background of some Jewish theology, with the background of some understanding of what the Torah means and what the Talmud says and so forth. Uh, I hope I've been able to convey that excitement. I apologize if I have not. I want to thank you for being uh, with me today. And I want to hope that you come back next week. And let me just close with a prayer, because as, as all of these things, um, as all of what I discuss show, I hope, there is a tremendous beauty to the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church and a sadness in what is lost by only following the first half of Judaism, in other words, before the Catholic Church, and failing to see its fulfillment in the Catholic Church. So let me close with a prayer, a Catholic prayer for the conversion of the Jews from the First Vatican Council, and perhaps next week I'll tell the history of this prayer. But it was a postulatum from the First Vatican Council, which was in the 1860s. It was endorsed by the Council Fathers and hardly endorsed by Pope Pius IX, who was the Pope of the Council. So I'll close with that prayer, inviting you to pray along with me. O God, who manifests your mercy and compassion towards all people, have mercy upon the Jewish race from the outset your chosen people. You selected them alone out of all the nations of the world to be the custodians of your sacred teachings. From them you raised up patriots, excuse me, prophets and patriarchs to announce the coming of the Redeemer. You will that your only Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, should be a Jew according to the flesh, born of a Jewish maiden in the land of promise, Listen to the prayers we offer you today for the conversion of the Jewish people. Grant that they may come safely to a knowledge and love of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah foretold by their prophets, and that they may walk with us in the way of salvation. Amen. Amen, and thank you, and join us again next week on Salvation is from the Jews. Bye for now. Music